Well, and it's, I mean, even the most experienced real estate investors face that problem because you can't, as you said, you can't know everything about a house uh, even after you've bought it. You know, you start getting in and tearing down walls, and you find all kinds of crazy stuff. And so every investor has got horror stories of <laughs> properties they lost their shirt on. And it's, you know, it's, it's what makes it difficult for novices to come into the market because, you know, most of the time somebody comes in as a real estate investor, you know, their chances of hitting those lemons are 10x because there's so many other things that they're going to miss. And then if their first couple of deals are underwater deals, you know, they run out of capital really fast and, and um, you know, it's a tough thing. So uh, unfortunately, we see a lot of, um, you know, every time the seminars run through town, there's another 500 real estate investors running around throwing up plastic signs by the side of the road trying to buy houses. And, um, you know, it's unfortunate, but, you know, a lot of them never, you know, never make it, never turn it into a business. You know, maybe they buy the house and then, you know, wipes them out. And that's, you know, sad because it really does take a lot of experience to go in and rehab a house and understand how to look at it. Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook, the podcast where we welcome business leaders, CEOs, and industry experts to discuss the rise to the top, building wealth, and real estate insights. Here's your host, Jeremy Spann. Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook. For more information on this show, go to our website, myexperiencedrealtor.com, experience with an ED, and uh, scroll over to that podcast button, scroll down. You can click to download this episode and all other episodes on all the different platforms, watch it on YouTube. And of course, if you're ever looking to buy and sell real estate anywhere on the planet, even if it's not in Fort Worth, Texas, click that find a trusted professional button. We'll make sure you get someone who's not an idiot to represent your interest in buying and selling real estate. But we're not here to talk about real estate today. Well, kind of to talk about real estate a little bit today. Welcome, Jeremy Brandt. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing amazing. Good to see you. Man, it is great to see you. So I start all these with a joke because my father-in-law said I have to do a joke when I first started these. So I intentionally do bad jokes. All right. right. But because we are talking a little bit about real estate today, I thought this one might be fitting and kind of a pickup line if you ever need one. Ready? Hey, girl, are you a mortgage? Because you got my interest. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. That's rough. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not one of them has been good yet. I think I've had like, I don't know, 70 episodes that have dropped by this point, drop every Tuesday. Not one joke has anybody ever gone. That was a great joke. Right? <laughs> well, at least you're consistent. Right. No, 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 no. Be, if anything, consistent at what you do, exactly. which is horrible at telling jokes. So for the audience, Jeremy and I know each other as many of my other guests that have been on this show is an organization called EO Entrepreneurs Organization. So Jeremy. We're going to go in and talk a little bit about EO, why you got an EO, but let's start off as where are you from and how, how did you get to where you are in life? <laughs> well, I grew up in uh, Spokane, Washington, which is a medium-sized town uh, in eastern Washington, right on the Idaho border. Grew up, uh, great family. My dad was a pastor um, and uh, lived oh, in you were the You were town. the preacher's kid, huh? I was the PK. <laughs> I was, yeah, yeah. And came from a big family. I'm the oldest of seven. So we had a large family. Uh, moved around a bit, and I uh, was homeschooled, which is kind of the other interesting thing about my background was all of the kids in our family were homeschooled. Before homeschooling was cool like it is now. Before you could do it on the internet. Yeah, it was way harder to do back then. Than you could, it's, it's a lot easier now. Uh, a lot of my friends homeschool their kids. It's way easier. And um, so we moved to Texas uh, with them. They moved down to Texas. We have some family down uh, in Texas uh, when I was about uh, 16. And uh, they stayed for about a year and moved back to Washington. And I was 17. And um, Started working at a computer store and loved what I was doing and just kind of found my niche. 
And uh, I stayed down here when I was 17 and I uh, worked at this computer store and then started uh, designing computer networks and doing a lot of things in technology in the, this was the late 90s, uh, early 2000. And uh, just had so much fun and was really at the right place, the right time with the right skill set and worked for a bunch of consulting companies. One of the kind of funny stories about my past is that I had a, uh, I worked for a consulting company when I was 19 uh, that did dot-com consulting and I was hired in uh, 1999. I got a bunch of stock options. The company went public. I was 20 and millions of dollars in stock and everybody just sat in the company and watched the stock ticker, decide how much money they were worth. Uh, and then of course, before I could sell any of it, I was locked up for a couple of years. The internet market crashed and, uh, and I got laid off. Uh, 21, 22, and I really had to figure out what I was going to do. I had a skill set that was not in high demand anymore, competing with guys in their 50s with big college educations. So I got into real estate, started flipping houses, loved it. Um, uh, it was a great time to get into real estate. Uh, and then really just started applying all of my tech background to the real estate industry, primarily on the marketing side, how to find properties. Uh, we were one of the first people to advertise online for distressed properties, you know, home flips. And um, really started doing a lot of that. And that led to the business and some of the other businesses that I have today. So it's been a really interesting journey, uh, lots of ups and downs, uh, but really excited to be here and, uh, and uh, kind of tell my story. Man. So, boy, you put that one in a 30-second movie preview. <laughs> uh, so, so going through all of that, right? Uh, so what, what is it that specifically you're doing now? So our main business, we have, a, we have a couple of different companies. The two main companies, the first is called Fast Home Offer, and we do online lead generation for house flippers and real estate agents. Uh, so our product really is motivated home sellers, people who want to sell their house quickly for cash usually, and real estate investors that are buying, renovating, and selling properties uh, all over the United States, buy those leads from us and then buy the house from the home seller and help them. We work with a lot of real estate agents now because a lot of times home sellers contact, contact us looking for a cash offer and then they realize that's too big of a discount for you know their situation and their best options are real estate agents. So we work with a lot of real estate agents and brokers uh, around the country as well to help them find properties. So we started that in 2002 and we're probably the largest lead generator for investors in the country now. So that's the lead gen business. And then about 12 years ago, uh, I started a company called webuyhouses.com. This is a company that we license out the We Buy Houses brand to uh, locally owned and operated offices all over the country. So we have about uh, 90 or so locally owned and operated uh, WeBuyHouses.com offices all over the country that are buying houses, operating as WeBuyHouses.com. You know, their vehicles are wrapped. We run TV commercials, do online marketing for them. We have a, a website that's really optimized uh, that they all use for lead generation uh, and also a back office system to help them manage their leads and route phone calls and those types of things. So that's been kind of the two main things uh, that we do is taking technology, applying it in creative ways to the real estate market and then building businesses around those. Yeah. So one, one of the interesting things that pop in my mind is going back to March of 2020 when we had that whole global pandemic thing kick off, right? Yeah. Is you look at things like Zillow and some of these others, right? And that had the illusion, in my opinion, that they were a lot more technology savvy than really what they were. All they really showed themselves to be, in my opinion, on, on Zillow was like, you're an online MLS, public MLS system, mm -hmm. right? There's nothing really magical that we found it to do. And then, you know, you fast forward. Matter of fact, 
Because I had a lot of people going, oh, Zillow, all this. And I was like, hey, first off, you live in a non-disclosure state. So whatever Zillow says your house is worth, there's a significant chance that your house is either worth a lot less than what it tells you or even a lot more than what it tells you. That's right. Right. And uh, and so then, you know, Zillow, everybody, all the iBuyers, right, stop buying houses. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and so, you know, people would say, hey, what do you think? Blah, blah, blah. And I said, man, well, I think it's a pretty big indicator if the iBuyers stop buying houses during that time. Because there's, there's, it's, it's not as savvy as you think it is. Then, then came the Zillow I buying program where they were just scooping up houses and overpaying for them. And people were like, man, I'm getting all these offers in my life. And I said, it's going to be short lived. And they said, why? And I says, at the end of the day, four walls and a roof on a piece of dirt, right? Is, th- and this is what I, I try to explain to clients all the time. They go, what's my house worth? And this is, well, I can tell you what the analysis says that your house is worth, but let me give you the real deal on what your house is worth. You have the appraisal district that says this is what your house is worth, and you always want that number to be a lot less than what your house is worth because you want to pay lower property taxes. Then you have an appraiser that may say what your house is worth, and then you have these cops that say what your house is worth. But at the end of the day, and this made me think about you know when you said you know cash, you want to cash. At the end of the day, your house is only worth what somebody willing to pay for it is and what you're willing to sell for it is. And that number may be in alignment with all these other things, but that's all your house is worth. And I think a lot of people have a hard time understanding that concept. So here it was, Zillow was overpaying for these houses and you can only over, because if you buy it, you still got to sell it, but now you're going to sell it at even a price point that I don't care how hot the market is, Depending on the areas and everything else, some people are going to go, I'm not paying that for that, no matter how scarce the inventory was. And then what was it? I, I can't even remember the incredible number that they had to dump all these properties just a few months ago. Yep. Right. Because they thought technology was going to come in and swoop all this up. And I was like, hey, you kind of forgot that whole people are only willing to pay so much for something. Right. And so anyhow, it just made me think of that whenever we're sitting here talking about the, the technology. So on lead gen, right, is how does something like that work, right? Like how, how, how does that go? So is it, you know, you were mentioning people now reach out to you and go, hey, you know, this is what I, you know, want to be able to do. Yeah. 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 So on the lead gen side, you know, it's the same thing that a local real estate agent or local real estate investor uh, would do on their own. Google advertising, Microsoft Bing advertising, TV advertising, direct mail, you know, all these different forms of advertising. But what happens is when people are smaller, uh, they have to build the expertise themselves. And sometimes with a small budget, it's tough to really make a dent in the market. You know, in some things, you just have to spend a lot of money to start getting leads off of whatever form of marketing that you're doing. And so we do massive national uh, campaigns on Google and Bing and these other search engines. We run national TV commercials. So our economies of scale uh, are a lot less than if somebody tries to run a TV commercial, let's say in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, we can run one nationally and our cost is much higher for the commercial, but our cost per call is much lower because it's a national commercial. So we get economies of scale. And so we run call centers and those calls come in and we qualify the home seller. And then that turns into a lead if they want to sell their house for cash uh, that goes out to an investor or to a real estate agent. So a lot of what we're always doing in our business is thinking about what are new marketing methods that we can use to connect with people 
at the time they need help, at the time that they're really looking to sell their house uh, in a motivated situation. They want to move quickly. Uh, so how can we be, be right in front of them when that time uh, is there for them? Uh, and then how can we qualify them quickly and connect them with an experienced real estate professional that knows what they're doing, is going to treat the home seller right and help solve their problem? Uh, we do a lot of that with technology in the middle. Like I said, I have a tech background. And so we've built from the ground up a lot of software to run that system, to qualify lead information, to add information about the property, uh, and route that out to agents via email, text, into their CRM, all that type of stuff. So how, how does AI play or does it play into, into what you're doing? It really doesn't. You know, we don't do a lot with kind of predictive uh, analytics on things. Uh, you know, we really are looking for um, how do we uh, connect with that person at the time of need rather than, you know, I know there's some companies out there that try to predict when somebody might want to sell their house in the future. We are really more focused on when you hit that point, we want to be marketing to you. We don't want to start marketing to you a year before, two years before, uh, although I think that's beneficial uh, for real estate agents. Most of the time for investors, somebody hits a, a point of need uh, quickly for some particular reason. Maybe they've got financial difficulty. Often it's a family member has died and they've inherited a property with lots of repairs mm -hmm. and you know they just want to be done with it. They don't want to clean it out. They don't want to do all the work. They just want somebody to come in and take care of it for them. Uh, so that's a lot of the type of um, thing that, that we do. And um, But we do a lot of uh, scoring on uh, property information. And, um, and really identifying the level of motivation that a home seller might have when they're coming through our system before we route them out to an investor or to an agent. So house flipping, I mean, HDTV, all yeah. the TV shows, right, became a hot, hot thing. Is that still just as hot? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a lot of those guys are our clients. So a lot of those houses that you see on TV came from our marketing system. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. yeah. So we, work the, we work with a lot of the, you know, the TV guys. Um, it, it, house flipping is very, very hot right now. I mean, you have anytime you have a market that is appreciating quickly and there's uh, high demand and low supply, uh, house flipping is a really profitable and great business to be in because you're taking, when it's really constrained supply, you're taking houses that need a lot of repair that somebody else might not want, coming in and adding a lot of value to them and then you know, selling them to a first time home buyer or uh, somebody that you know wants a house in great condition, they don't want to buy a project. Uh, and so house flipping right now is, incredibly competitive. It's a very difficult market if you're a brand new real estate investor, but there's really big investment companies. A lot of our clients are buying over a hundred houses a year right now. You have many crews that are coming in and rehabbing them and then putting them back out on the market. The nice thing about a hot market and house flipping is the house sells in you know, seven to 14 days. I mean, they're just, when you're, when you're ready to sell the house, you don't have to worry about it sitting on the market right now. It's, it moves really, really quick. So how is, so we've got major supply chain issues and we got major supply labor issues, mm -hmm. right? Which is increasing the cost to go do these things. How is that affecting the house flipping market? Well, it's definitely making it more expensive. You know, so if your cost to do the repair has doubled, let's say, because of, you know, the supply chain issues and the cost of lumber and the cost of labor and all these things, uh, then you have to buy the house for less money. Uh, otherwise, you'll, you'll get underwater. And so that's one of the things that, you know, an experienced investor, experienced business owner recognizes and can kind of build into their pricing model of what they're going to offer for a house. A newer investor might be looking at data from you know, a year ago or pre-COVID and think that they can rehab a house for $20,000 and it's going to cost them $40,000. Well, that was all their profit in the deal. And now they're underwater. And so a lot of um, investors are 
being very careful with their offers and, and making a little bit lower offers right now exactly because of that. And if you don't know if lumber is going to go up another 20% or down, you know, you have to protect yourself on the, uh, on the downside and make offers that make sense where you've got a, the ability to buy the house, fix it up and sell it and make money at it. So let's, let's peel back the layers on this one a little bit here is, is so you, I mean, it's a scarce market right now on inventory, no right? Yeah. I mean, it is, it is absolutely insane. So if investors are trying to buy something for lower, but there's a lot of people trying to buy how, I mean, at this point, they're just buying whatever there is they can get their hands on. Mm -hmm. How does an investor compete with something like that? Well, the investors compete in a couple of different ways. Primarily, it's houses that are in need of significant repair and somebody doesn't want to do the work. And so, you know, you can list a house that needs a lot of work on the MLS, but there's a very, there's a much smaller group of buyers that are going to buy that house. And it's probably going to be an investor anyway. Most people that are going to live in a house don't want to buy a huge renovation project coming into it. Uh, they want to buy a house and move in and, and be done. And so most of those houses that need significant repairs end up being purchased by investors. The investors fix them up and then uh, they're sold retail. You know, they're still in inventory. They just go through an investor to, to do the rehab before they're on the open market for a regular home buyer to purchase. So when you say significant repairs, give us some examples of what you might mean by that. Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of everything, the whole gamut, right? So you might just have a house that's a little bit dated that needs paint and carpet and landscaping. And I would say that's kind of the minimum level of, of renovation all the way to you know, older houses where you got to rip out all the wiring inside the house. You got to redo the entire foundation. You got to replace the roof. You got to move walls around. You get significant code violations where you've got to, you know, sometimes uh, our clients will rip a house down to the studs and almost start over. You've got the exterior walls and that's about it because of the age of the house and, and the code issues on the house. So there's really kind of everything in between from light cosmetic to, you know, almost more difficult than building a house from the ground up is renovating a house that's already there and yeah. you know, ripping it apart and put it back together. Yeah. Cause that's sometimes it's, it's, you know, cause I, I, I mean, I got a real estate fund. I mean, I'll buy on an average of about a million dollars worth of houses a week. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I had one recently that when we bought it, right. I was like, Hey, cool. We can go do an addition and everything else. And my GC was like, it is actually going to cost us more to try to do that rather than just scrape this thing and start all over it. Right. And so, you know, I was like, okay, well, you know, then that comes with a, you know, the blessing is now you got a brand new house, but that comes with a whole nother set of headaches because now we've got to go get approval from the city and what you could build 10 years ago is much <laughs> different than current. Right. And there's all these things and things that go with that. And Cities don't necessarily move at the rate of speed we would like them to. And it becomes just another headache. So we have to put into those calculations of like, okay, what normally I might take four months to build is going to take us eight months because we know we're going to have to wait on approval for plans and all of this. And then we get started and then you got to bring in the inspectors at certain things and, and all that. So that becomes another set of headaches to do it that way as well. But it is really interesting. And I've been really watching all this is because if an investor is going to go in and buy a house in a particular, let's say area, zip code, whatever, where it's a hot area and you're like, Hey man, we got to take this thing all the way back to the studs. There's a lot of money that's going to go into doing that. Especially if 
you got to do the wiring. You got to do the roof, roofs. God, roofs are expensive. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, hey, we got to do the, the the factors here. If like if we buy it this and this is what we're going to spend, we've got to sell it for this in order to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And then what I what I find really really funny, and uh, I'll leave the area out, is there was a for sale by owner, right? And he had priced the house in the area for $150,000 more than anything else is sold. And I was like, I don't know where you're getting your number that, man, but there's no way. And he's like, but yeah, look at everything in my house. And I was like, dude, I don't care if you put a golden shitter in that thing. It doesn't mean somebody's going to, because it comes back to what we talked about earlier. Right. Your house is only going to trade for what a willing and able buyer is going to be willing. And I don't care. I don't care if your house is the cat's meow. As a matter of fact, when we when we have clients on the the real estate team portion of this, not the buying side and all that, is and we have a client that goes, man, I really, really like this house in this area. And I'm like, yeah, it's a pretty cool house. But you're going to be the Mac Daddy mm-hmm. in the area. You're the standard deviation here. So just understand that at some point we all sell our house. And when that time comes you're going to have a challenge selling this thing because there are no cops. Like everybody else is going to come in. Like I remember one uh, ticker one was uh, down in Mansfield. And this was, this house was on, I can't remember, like 12 or 14 acres. And it was like an 8,000 square foot house. And I mean, and this thing was built like a brick shit house, right? I mean, this thing was solid. And, but it was, it, it was surrounded by neighborhoods where nothing else had sold for higher than 450000 So, yeah, I was like, yeah, an appraiser can tell you your house is worth $2 million. But at the end of the day, who wants to buy a $2 million house surrounded by $400,000 houses? Yeah, I may have seen that house. We get, we, get a it, lot of, we get a lot of interesting houses like that come through our system yeah. because, yeah, they spent you know $4 million building their house. And so they think it's got to be at least worth $4 million, probably five. But, you know, they're in a neighborhood or an area where it's just never going to never going to sell for that price. And so then they, you know, go looking for companies that buy houses for cash and, and um, ultimately invariably end up with us. And uh, so in the DFW area, when I was still buying a lot of houses, we would go look at them. And I'm not sure if it's the one in Mansfield or this one in Arlington where it was a neighborhood of $400,000 houses. And then this tech guy, he had, I think he was in the cell phone industry, had made all this money, built this. One, it was ugly. It was just an ugly house. Uh, but he built like a six or seven million dollar house with a bowling alley and all this stuff, you know, big gargoyles on the front, not a ton of land. So you would drive through the neighborhood and then at the end of the road in the neighborhood, you know, all these half million dollar houses, there's a, you know, five, six, seven million dollar house at the end of the road. And I don't know what, I think he might've got foreclosed on ultimately because he could just never sell it for any kind of price yeah. uh, that made sense. Yeah. And that's the... And you're not kidding, man. So like, <laughs> like uh, my other house up in Colorado and it goes to Springs and uh, we, we live in an area called Piedra Estates and, you know, it's pretty, pretty nice houses. And <laughs> one house, like, I'm like, what were they thinking? <laughs> like it, this house, this, here's the funniest thing about it. Where that particular house is, has absolutely the most remarkable views than any of the other houses in the area. Mm-hmm. And mine's got a pretty good view. This one has the most remarkable view, but it is the most, it is like somebody threw up on an architect's plans and that's what they built. 
you know, we call it the Pepto-Bismol house because oh, no. it's pink, oh. right? And you drive by it and you're like, dude, a kid with Legos could have done a better job than this. And I'm always fascinated. Like, what was your vision when you were putting this? Like, when you built this, you clearly did not build this to sell it one day mm-hmm. because you are the only person on the planet that thinks this is a great house, <laughs> right? Because everybody else is looking at this thing going... What were you, like, seriously, I want to know what drugs, like, what dispensary in Colorado did you go to? Because you bought some bad stuff that allowed you to think this was a good idea. And it's just, it it is funny. So, I imagine you probably see some of those things that come on your thing is, did you ever see any of them come on your radar where you're like, hey, there's just, it doesn't matter how much rehab you throw on this thing, man. You know, you, you, you know, the old saying, man, you, you can, you can polish a turd, but it's still a turd, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, you can sell just about anything for a certain price. It might be way less than you thought, but yeah. you know, at some point, you know, you got a roof and four walls. It's worth something, and so we definitely see a lot of the really oddball properties come through our system that are, you know, stuff like that where it's just crazy. And an investor, you know, looks at it and says, "Well, I'm going to have to spend one hundred fifty, two hundred thousand dollars redoing everything in this house. You know, repainting, changing the the structure uh, to make it." something that somebody would want to to live in uh, and try to match it with the area that it's in. And, uh, but you know, somebody will pay, you know, somebody will pay for it at some point. It just might be a half or a third of what the, uh, the rebuild cost would be, but that's, you know, that's real estate. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, uh, the area that I'm currently focused on and this is, this, you know, and, and I, I do feel bad for the people that get the house flipping bug and they know n- nothing about what they're doing. Yeah, that's a right. fast way to lose money. I mean, man, you might as well just go and buy crypto, right? At that <laughs> point, went up today, down tomorrow kind of thing. And because if you don't know what you're doing, it can get very costly. Like, so the particular area that I'm focused on, I knew that, hey, this area has a history of old, old plumbing. Right. And I don't mean in the house. I mean, under and outside the house. Right. And then you got to go, Okay, there's another factor. If this thing has bad plumbing, is this a slab house or is this a pier and beam house? Which I'll take pier and beam all day, every day, because the cost to get in there a lot easier to climb under the house and dig stuff up than to start chipping through concrete. Right. Because then even when you have to trench through the concrete, now you take the risk of affecting the foundation, right? Depending on, I mean, there's so many factors that go into that, that that's, you know, so somebody doesn't know what they're doing, right? Like I've got a particular house where, and even then, no matter how savvy you are at something, sometimes you're just not going to know how bad it is till you have the keys to it, right? So true. Oh man, like I've got one of my houses right now that like I've had three plumbing companies out there that have run cameras through it thinking, okay, I've checked every single box, man, <laughs> no, sir. Like my guy was sending me photos yesterday and I was like, God, that's bad. <laughs> like, and I'm sitting here. As a matter of fact, he was over at the house. It's, it, it, my business partner in my maintenance company there. And we were sitting here and I was just like, that is just so bad. I'm like, how is it that we had three plumbing companies that all three ran cameras through these lines that this is missed, yeah. right? Because sometimes you're going to hit, and that's the thing, right? The accept the accepted rate of risk when you're doing something, right? There are no bat in a thousand at this, you know? So you got to line your expectations when you come into this that, hey, man, like we have an acceptable rate. Like we, we call it, hey, the one in 10, one out of 10 that we buy, 
is going to be a complete right. loss, right? And and as a matter of fact, if we make it through a set of 10 and we don't have one, then we know that the next set of 10, our risk is even higher. And if we make it through that set of 10, like we are like, okay, in this <laughs> next 10, which one of these is going to be it? Yeah. Because now, but if we get through that 30 and we only had one, and people go, oh my God, that was a big loss. I'm like, actually, I'm jumping for joy because I really should have had one per 10. Yeah. Right. But th- I think there's a lot of people that just don't understand that when they get into this. Right. Well, and it's, I mean, even the most experienced real estate investors face that problem because you can't, as you said, you can't know everything about a house even after you've bought it. You know, you start getting in and tearing down walls and you find all kinds of crazy stuff. And, um, and so every investor has got horror stories of <laughs> properties they lost their shirt on. And it's, you know, it's, it's what makes it difficult for novices to come into the market because, you know, most of the time somebody comes in as a real estate investor, you know, their chances of hitting those lemons are, 10x because there's so many other things that they're going to miss. And then if their first couple of deals are underwater deals, you know, they run out of capital really fast and, and um, you know, it's a tough thing. So uh, unfortunately, we see a lot of you know, every time the seminars run through town, there's another 500 real estate investors running around throwing up plastic signs by the side of the road trying to buy houses. And, you know, it's unfortunate, but a lot of them never, you know, never make it, never turn it into a business. Uh, you know, maybe they buy the house and then, you know, wipes them out. And that's, you know, sad because it really does take a lot of experience to go in and rehab a house and understand how to look at it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, and it's funny because so one of my one of my rentals and I've you've got to have processes and systems. Right. No and so half of the stuff I buy, I've never even seen it. Right. Because I have a team. Right. My boots on the ground and uh, my guy who's really, really good. But man, he he. He missed it on this one. And he was just like, man, this is why this property is going to kill it, blah, 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 blah. And then when I came in town, and this is after we owned it, I was like, why did we buy this? <laughs> and he was like, because of X, Y, Z. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like, why? Why did we buy this? It's a horrible floor plan. It's had so many additions onto this thing that it literally looks like, you know what I'm talking about. Those that just had multiple... I was like, this, this, like, there's nothing we can do with this. So I was like, all right, well, let's rent it out and let's try to get our accepted rate of recovery with some rental income. And then we'll decide what to do at a later time. And so then my other business partner goes, hey, maybe it would be better if we added a third bathroom to this thing. And I says, let me help you out on this one, chief. (laughs) The only money we're going to spend on this thing is a bulldozer and then we start from scratch over again i'm not throwing a penny at this thing at all it's on a weird lot there's a corner lot not just a corner like hey 90 degree angle like one of those weird corner ones it's got a tiny yard i was like the only thing you can do with this thing is scrape it and start all over and and he was like man you don't think and i was like no 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 you want to go spend fifteen grand on a on a on, on a bathroom? I'd rather spend fifteen grand on a dumpster and a bulldozer, <laughs> and we just start over. And actually, fortunately for that particular one, the dirt is increasing in value faster than the houses are. So I said, so we've already got that on our radar. Is to roughly about fall of next year, we'll go ahead and knock it down, and then just start over and and have a new build by summer of 2023. Yeah. Right. And, um, but that's the thing is a lot, a lot of these folks, they just don't understand it when you go. So, so you're all over the country, right? What would you say is the, 
you know, like, we know Fort Worth is a pretty, pretty hot place, but yep. where would you say is like some of the other extremely hot, hot areas right now? Well, uh, you know, hot means different things to different people. The, the most expensive, fastest growth markets are, you know, DFW is definitely in that list, but, you know, it's kind of the traditional problem real estate markets, LA, Phoenix, Miami, uh, you know, a lot of Florida. Uh, so those are all really hot, fast growth markets. But the downside of that is they're also by far the most competitive markets. You have guys with huge, really deep pockets, very well funded, very experienced that are operating in these areas. And it makes it uh, very difficult. You know, it's just highly, highly competitive. So the markets that I love uh, as a real estate investor are the medium markets across the country where it's not, you know, they're not in the news every day for, you know, the, the speed of growth of their housing markets. They're not, you know, top 10 cities. There are these mid-tier cities where an investor can go in uh, and really build a really great business um, uh, buying and fixing up and selling houses. So when you think about those markets, you know, Nashville, Memphis, Boise, areas around Salt Lake City, uh, a bunch of these markets people don't think about, but some of our largest investors are in those, what I kind of call secondary markets, buying hundreds of homes a year uh, because there's a little bit less competition. There's a lot more older houses that haven't been renovated and they can uh, have a lot bigger market share of their whole market because they're a bigger player in a smaller market. So uh, I'm, when people ask me what markets I invest in, I always start going down those secondary markets. You know, Investing in Phoenix is pretty tough. You've got some huge <laughs> players out there. I mean, we generate a ton of leads in Phoenix and sell them to most of those really big guys but they can outspend just about anybody. And that makes it tough for uh, you know, a smaller investor to come in and yeah. know, know your place in the food chain, right? Yeah. Because I mean, <laughs> look, if somebody can outspend you, it, it doesn't matter how good you are at something, right? Well, and you know, just like with lead gen for us, scale creates efficiency. The bigger that we get, the more efficient we can be. Our cost per lead or cost per client goes way down. For a big real estate investor, uh, the same is true, right? Their cost of capital goes way down. If you're a newer real estate investor, you're getting hard money or you're trying to you know, work with a bank and your timelines are out. You know, these big guys have private, these big guys have private money and, you know, their cost of capital might be a couple of percent. They can, you know, they can run massive marketing campaigns to get economies of scale on their marketing. They can have a warehouse with all of their paint and all of their carpet and all of their lumber stacked up so that when a rehab comes along, they're not waiting for that stuff or so price sensitive. They've already bought everything and their crew can just go to the warehouse, pick all the stuff up, go to the rehab, knock it out, and they move on. The novice might be waiting. Uh, you know, It might take them a month or two longer to rehab a property, which if they've borrowed hard money, you know, that's adding up in interest payments and other things. So all that to say, like I said, the, the big hot markets that you hear about all the time, I think are a little bit tougher. I love the medium and small markets for investors. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. And in, in, in Tennessee, wow, right? Like you used to think of blues clubs and barbecue, and now you go and it's hipsters and craft beer, right? I mean, if you oh, great out there, yeah. We did our a uh, couple of years ago. We do an annual conference for all of our WeBuyHouses.com licensees all over the country, and our uh, licensee that's in Nashville wanted you know wanted us to hold the conference there, so we we held our conference there that year, and we just had a blast. Nashville is such a great city. We had a lot of fun. They did a great job hosting us, and you know, everybody loved it. Yeah, it is. It is. It is different. So my my wife is nuts and runs marathons, <laughs> and people go, "Oh, she's crazy." And I was like, "Anybody that runs marathons, I think, is crazy, right?" And uh, so we go all over the country to all these marathons. Actually, uh, 
I have a following uh, for my own version of a marathon. I do a marathon pub crawl while she's doing a marathon. And the thing we have in common at the end of the race is neither one of us can stand. Uh, and so like I'll be Facebook live and people are always like, man, that's hilarious. You know? <laughs> but, uh, but like just watching some of those areas, you know, in Tennessee and like you're talking about these mid, these mid markets where, because at the end of the day is if an area can find, you know, people aren't necessarily migrating to an area because that's the highest pay for them because it doesn't matter how much money you make if the cost of living is more than what you're going to make, right? Mm -hmm. So if the amount of money they're going to make and the affordability of where they can live gives them a balance, that becomes attractive to a lot of America, right? Absolutely. And, and, and that's, you know, and they identify those areas. And then naturally, once it gets established, now people are more migrating because word of mouth, right? Because now they're calling their friends back mm -hmm. wherever, New York, wherever you want to call it, East Coast, West Coast, whatever. And they're like, man, this is great. Like, yeah, I took a pay cut from $120,000 a year to $80,000 a year, but I live in a $300,000 house instead of a million dollar house. Yeah. Well, right? and what, I, what you, you're probably seeing in your business that we definitely see a lot of is with COVID, you know, the work from home, work remote thing has really changed a lot of people's view on what that looks like, right? It used to be, you know, if you were in the tech world, you had to live in San Francisco to be in the middle of everything. There's been a massive migration of people out of San Francisco that are, I think, never going back because so much of, uh, especially in the tech world, work is now remote and people can work from anywhere. So they look at their quality of life and say, you know, it's three times as expensive for me to live in San Francisco. I can go live in you know, Park City, Utah, or somewhere in Colorado, or Austin, or Dallas-Fort Worth, have a much lower cost of living, um, much uh, friendlier tax structure. And I don't have to be in the middle of everything because everybody's remote now anyway. I'm on Zoom calls and on Slack channels. So we're really seeing a lot of that. And I think that does a lot to push up those secondary markets where they're beautiful areas, great cost of living, uh, but, you know, not the high-tech jobs or the, you know, headquarters of a bunch of big companies. Now, if you can work remote, you go pick the best place to live, not based on your job, but based on where you really want to live. So one of the things when, you know, when I'm having conversations with people, they go, what are the things you're looking for for an area that might start to develop? And I'm like, go talk to their local government and find out when faster internet is on their <laughs> horizon. Because if they're making a prediction of like, hey, we're going to have to bring in fiber here in the next year, you want to go start buying things before the fiber comes in. Mm -hmm. Because after that fiber comes in, now people have, because look, everything's about internet connection now, like you were just saying, right? You can work anywhere, right? It's like one of the running jokes that a, a, a lot of my friends have is, you know, hey, you want to get together for a beer next time you're in town? You know, it's no longer, hey, do you want to go get a beer? You know, because I'm all over the place, right. right? Like we were sitting here joking around. It's like, I literally look at my phone on a daily basis to know where am I going? Where am I going to be? And, uh, or even like we were joking, it's like, I'll get like this, you know, my American Airlines app will pop up, like checking on your flight. And I'm like, oh shit, I'm flying tomorrow. <laughs> you know, cause I literally live out of a, a, a backpack right. and, a, and, and a, and a, you know, the carry on suitcase. Right. Like I don't check luggage anymore. I don't, well, one time is the most valuable commodity to me. I do not have time to stand in lines and I don't have time to sit there and wait on my luggage to come out. And, uh, which is really, really funny is. My house in Pocosa Springs, Durango Airport, is 45 minutes. And my wife and I, for, for New Year's, so she spends a lot of time up in Colorado, right? She just, she just 
that's where her heart is. That's where she wants to be. So it's usually me traveling all over the place. And uh, Durango's airport, really, really small. I've been there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so, like, literally, like, when we, I, I would sit there. My, my family thought I was joking when they were up for Christmas. As I was like, hey, because we had major weather come in. Like, I mean, it was dumping feet of snow. And, uh, and so I said, hey, we're going to need to really leave really, really early for the airport because we don't, you know, we don't know what the road conditions are going to be. And, um, and and I would tell them, and I was like, but the unfortunate part is the TSA may not be there. And they were like, what? And I was like, yeah, like literally, like they don't even drop the gate. Like they just put up a sign that says out to lunch, right? I mean, that's it. Like, just, I mean, that's how small town that kind of thing is. And, uh, and sure enough, my brother-in-law calls me and he goes, you weren't kidding. Like we came to get in line and they just had a sign up, not here, <laughs> right? And I was like, yeah. So then fast forward the following week, Laura and I were, were traveling to Wisconsin to go see an old friend and we were going to go to a Packers game, which by the way, if you've never been to a Packers game in, in general, it is the football experience. I don't care what the Cowboys say they can got, man, Packers, they, that <laughs> fan base just does it different. But more importantly, if you've never been to a Packers game in Green Bay, Wisconsin, with one degree, <laughs> when they say hell has frozen over, it's called Green Bay, you Wisconsin, right? You know, like, like it was, it was, it was ridiculous cold. And it's um, so only how we were flying up, and uh, we we were getting ready to leave for the airport. She goes, "You don't think we should leave earlier?" And I was like, "No." She goes, "So then we get in a vehicle, right?" And we're driving. She goes, "You know the flight boards at five thirty." And I was like, "Yeah." She goes, "The GPS says we're going to get there at five fifteen. And I was like, "Yeah." And she goes, what, what, are, what are we going to do? And I was like, honey, I fly in and out of this airport almost on a weekly basis. I'm telling you, we're going to be just fine. We're going to pull up right next to the terminal. Terminal, not yeah. terminals, right? And I said, and we're going to pull up at 515. We're going to walk up and through the line. And at 525, we're going to be standing at the gate. She's like, what? You know, because she doesn't fly in and out yeah, as yeah. much. And I was like, I'm not kidding. That's how this is going to go. And sure enough, like there's many a times, like I, by the time I get up to the gate, they're just now boarding. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and she was just like, you really got this thing. And I was like, yeah, because there's there's nothing here to do. I'm not going to sit here for two hours. Mm -hmm. Right. Matter of fact, there was one flight I was catching out and there's a casino 10 minutes away. And when I got there, there was a two hour flight delay. And I was like, I'm not sitting here. So I went down <laughs> the casino and just started playing, just started gambling for two hours to have something to do. And, uh, but it, it is, it is pretty fascinating to watch what goes on in these, these, these different little markets and understanding, Hey, what is the infrastructure that is there? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and so let's go back to something you had mentioned, uh, that I, I think a lot of the audience hears, but maybe don't quite understand what that means is hard money. Mm-hmm. Right. So talk to us about that. Well, so uh, I do a little bit of hard money lending to um, mostly folks around DFW. But, um, you know, hard money lending or sometimes they call it asset based lending is when sometimes it's a private individual. Sometimes it's a, a investment company uh, lends money based on the value of the property, not based on somebody's credit score or capital uh, or kind of other things related to their personal finances. They look at the asset and they'll lend on a percentage of the asset. Uh, and then usually lend for some of the repair costs. Uh, and they can usually do it pretty quickly uh, because it's based on the asset. So they'll get it appraised and, and understand what this asset is worth in real estate investing a house and, um, and what the repair costs are going to be. Uh, so the pros are that they can move pretty quickly and 
you know, it's not based on your income and uh, kind of your credit history. The downside is it's typically uh, pretty expensive money. So, you know, most hard money lenders will charge uh, a point or two up front, uh, you know, one or two percent of the loan, and then, you know, 10 to 14, 15 percent interest. Uh, and they're usually short term loans. So, you know, six months or so uh, to buy the house, fix it up, and then get on the market and resell it. But for most people that get into real estate investing, unless they've already built some wealth somewhere else, their first couple of properties, they get hard money loans on to do the flip. And then you know, if they're going to do a rental, they'll refinance into a longer term loan. But if you're going to buy a house you know, for cash from somebody, uh, you've got to be able to move quick. And a bank is not going to give you a quick loan on a rehab property. And they don't really, most banks don't like lending on properties that need a lot of repair. You know, they love that owner occupied house. And, and so hard money lenders kind of fill that gap between the person that can't afford the, the can't afford the loan or uh, the person that um, doesn't have the money to do the rehab and everything else and buy the property and they can move really quick. So it's a big part of residential investing is this kind of hard money lending ecosystem. Usually as investors get bigger, they find much less expensive ways to borrow money. They either get a large line of credit from a bank, they work with a family office or you know private individual that has a lot of wealth that can give them a line of credit or um, a lend on these properties quickly at a lower interest rate because it's a pretty secure investment for the lender, you've got a piece of real estate, it's an asset, it's got a somewhat intrinsic value that we can calculate. And if somebody's very experienced and is, you know, as you have done, flipped a lot of houses, you can look at somebody's track record and say, all right, you know, yeah, you might have one in 10 or one in 20 that are a loss, but overall, you're doing really well and we trust you. So we're going to give you, uh, you know, this money as an investment and either share in the, in the deals or just charge an interest rate for the capital. What do you, for the audience, what do you mean by sharing the deal? So there's a lot of investors out there, not so much you know bank hard bank type hard money lenders, but investors with high net worth that will uh, for a newer investor uh, what they call joint venture on the deal, where where uh, the newer investor might find the property, they've got it under contract at a really good price, and the other investor might say, well I'll put up the money, you do all the work, and we'll split the profits fifty fifty at the end of the deal. So I'm not going to charge you an interest rate. I'm just going to kind of help you. I'll fund everything and then I'll take 50% of whatever the upside is. Hopefully there is upside uh, at the end of the day. So that's the other way a lot of people get started is finding somebody else and joint venturing on deals. And for the audience sake, compared to hard money lending, Mm -hmm. these JVs, how much more frequent is that compared to the hard lending? You know, I would say hard money for people that are doing one or the other. Hard money is probably, you know, 80%. Yeah, eighty-five uh, percent. You know, it's, so it's it's a lot more clear. It's a lot more structured. The hard money lender uh, they like collecting just the interest rate and the guaranteed payment in a joint venture deal. The person with the capital could lose. You know, they could get no return at all from their capital, and in fact, could lose some of their capital uh, in a joint venture deal. So uh, you see them a little bit less often, but there's still a lot of them out there that people do. Uh, a lot of it's tied to you know real estate coaches that are helping people in their programs learn real estate, so they'll then uh, joint venture with them on deals because they're teaching them how to do this and the, the coach can kind of keep an eye on them and make sure they don't get in too deep. Yeah. So it's, you know, it, it, the reason I was asking for, you know, that for the audience sake is because I think a, a lot of people think, oh yeah, I'll just go find somebody that has money that'll JV this. And I'm <laughs> like, yeah, well, you must have a pretty good network of people because yeah. that's generally not, you're not going to see that as often, you know, whereas the hard money lending. So let's go into that a little bit more for the audience sake is um, so that way they understand what you mean by the points and the interest, right? Because there's a difference between the two is so somebody needs a hundred grand 
right? Walk us through that. Is what sure. are, what are the costs? If they're going to have a, a hundred grand for a, let's just say a year, right? Math for Marines yeah. here because I can't count all that good without a calculator. <laughs> Never do public math. No, 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 no. no. So somebody goes, hey, I need a hundred grand to go do this deal. What are the costs associated with that from the hard lender? Yeah. Well, they're all, they're all kind of different. You need to look at um, their structure really closely because a lot of the costs can add up. Um, so typically, you know, you're going to have to pay for legal fees to put the, you know, the loan together. Uh, you're going to have to pay for an appraisal on the property. Um, and then uh, if the hard money lender agrees to do the loan, let's say they're charging two points up front. Well, two points is 2%. So if you're going to borrow $100,000 up front, generally you'd have to pay $2,000 just to borrow the money. Uh, so that's kind of upfront points. And then if, uh, you know, let's say it's to make the math really easy, 12%, mm-hmm. um, they might do an interest only loan at 12%. Well, 12% on $100,000 is $12,000. It's $1,000 a month. So your interest only payments might be $1,000 a month every month that you hold that loan. And then whenever you pay it off, the payoff would be $100,000 because that's how much you borrowed and you've paid all the interest kind of as you go. And different hard money lenders have different rules about when points are due. A lot of times it might be a really short-term loan. They might charge you one or two points up front. But then after three months or six months, if you want to extend it, like you didn't get your rehab done fast enough, it's another point or two points to extend the loan. And if you if it's a six-month loan and you default, uh, they might not extend it. You might go into a default, which is usually 18% interest, uh, a really high interest rate because you've defaulted on the loan. And then they have the right to sell the property uh, or foreclose on you and sell the property. Most lenders won't do that. They just want you to you know, pay off the loan and, and move on. But it can, the fees can definitely add up. And I think a lot of novice investors sometimes get in over their head with that, especially if a property isn't fixed up as fast as they thought it would be or sits on the market longer than they thought it would be. You know, you think about in that $100,000 scenario, you know, there's an overhead of $1,000 a month that's just disappearing off of their profits every month. Uh, that they hold that property. So every month costs them an extra $1,000 to hold on to that property. So they want to get it done as fast as they can. Yeah. So for, for the audience sake on clarity is I come in, I need a hundred grand. In order for you to give me that hundred grand, I got to give you two grand, mm-hmm. right? And then you give me that hundred grand. And let's say my rehab is going to cost 50 grand. And so, and it takes me a year, just kind of keeping it simple. Yep. And at that 12% interest, I know it's costing me $1,000 a month. So if I got the 100 grand plus the 50 grand plus the 12 grand, I'm now at $162,000, which means I need to sell that house for at least $162,000 or more. But then if you need an agent, right, now you got realtor fees that are going to be involved. So you got to bake that in. And then you got that little thing called property taxes. That are also, that's where, so that's where, so the particular area that I'm really hyper niche focused on is I, I buy a lot of off market houses, right? Through just different connections and whatnot, knowing other people. Yep. And, um, and, and really the funny thing that I, that I, I laugh when I go in there is they go, well, my favorite, my favorite saying when I'm talking to an off market deal, they go, what I need is this. And I'm <laughs> like, well, what you need may not align with what I'm willing to give you because a lot of these houses they bought 20 years ago. So their tax appraisal is significantly low. So they're paying a tax appraisal property tax on something that's 150, but they want to sell it for 450. And I'm not saying the house isn't worth 450, 
But if I'm going to make that a rental, that means my property taxes are going to be 3x what yours are, yep. which is going to eat my cash flow, right? So a lot of people, I really laugh when people go, hey, what's the NOI on that? And I just start laughing uncontrollably. I'm just like, I'm just like, okay, man, first off, you need to look at the cash flow. and Or as I like to joke, joke, the money that goes in your pocket, the fiscal money goes in your pocket after you pay everybody else. And, and, and I'm like, you better pay attention to that. Because you got all these people, especially in this particular area, because all these sellers are like, oh, we got all these California people coming in. And I was like, yeah. And you want to know why your house goes back on the market? Because at some point they realize, oh, crap, I'm not going to have, it's going to cost me money every month to have somebody in here because of the property tax situation on this. Yep. So I tell people, it's like, hey, when you get in here, you you better look at all things great and small. Or... Like what we've experienced here in the last year because of weather conditions, insurance rates shot through the roof. So what might have been in your analysis before, which was $100 a month for insurance, now it jumps to $250. Well, if you're, if you're cash on cash at the end of the day was $300 a month, well, now you're down to $150. Right. And, and so the, all these folks, they don't take those things into consideration. As a matter of fact, I, I buy a lot of houses off of unsophisticated investors, mm -hmm. right? So like, like I don't do multiple offers. Or like I don't even play that game. Like this thing better be kicking off some serious juice if I'm even going to play that game. So I'm like, nope, not playing that. Um, uh, it's, just, it's just not going to make financial sense. But several that I've bought is because they came in and they looked at that particular area and they were like, oh, wow. And especially like I like to focus on off-campus student housing in areas, mm -hmm. right? Which is a blessing and a curse, right? The blessing is mom and daddy are going to pay for little Johnny and little Susie and they'll write the checks for whatever. And people, and they come in and they're like, oh my gosh, it'll make this much money. And I was like, yeah, have you seen Animal House? <laughs> like, do you know what they're going to do to that house? Yeah. Like they are going to, they're going to tear the rails off of this thing. So you better have this accepted rate of, call it high maintenance. Yeah. And I don't mean the maintenance in itself, the high maintenance of the, the tenants always complaining, wanting and, and so forth. And they just don't even take that into consideration. So they come in here and they buy it. And then six months later, I'll knock on their door and go, Hey, how's it working out for you? Matter of fact, I have one recently that they had bought a year earlier for five fifty, And I knew, I was like, man, that's a great location. That's a great house. And even then I would have bought it for five fifty, but they had no clue what they were doing like none and so less than a year later they were like they actually reached out to me and they were like hey i know you're over here in this particular area buying these houses would you buy it and i said yeah but i'm not giving you 550 but what i will do is i will close quick fast in a hurry on 500 mm -hmm. and they were willing to take the fifty thousand dollar loss on it because they were like just get me away from these animals mm -hmm. right because well, they didn't know. Yeah. yeah, and that's you know that's a lot of real estate investing is you know I think um, people maybe don't realize that that the reason you know they probably hear this all the time why would somebody ever sell their house for less than it's quote unquote worth and the reason is that you're solving somebody's problem right people's problems aren't always money a lot of times their problems are I'm sick of getting calls from these guys and I just want to be out of this business or you know I've got this house that's two states away that's full of you know, granddad's stuff and I don't want to deal with it and, you know, take three weeks out of my life and go out there and, you know, unpack it. And so you're solving somebody's problem 
by buying their house. And you know, investor has to buy at a discount because you know they're paying cash and they're going to fix it up and all these reasons. Uh, but really, you're solving somebody's problems. And I think when an investor goes in with that mindset, um, they're much more successful, much quicker because you change how you talk to people and how you think about situations, solving the problem rather than you know I just got to get this price for the house and that's it. It's not a it's not a uh, business transaction most of the time to the people that you're buying from. Yeah. And it is funny is uh, recently as of, I don't know, here in the last three or four months, I was dealing with this one real estate moron, agent moron. <laughs> and unfortunately he had the same first name as you and I, I won't say his last name, but his name was Jeremy. And this guy was a buffoon. Like, as a matter of fact, he is doing incredible disservice to his clients. So before I even knew that he was going to be an agent on this deal, I had another friend of mine that I've done a bunch of deals with. He called me and goes, hey, listen, I sold this house to this lady and she is in over her head and she just needs out of this thing. I was like, yeah. I was like, that's actually over in the target area that I'm looking in, right? And I know, look, you, when somebody calls me and says, hey, I got a house for sale over here, all I go is, how much do you want for it? What's your OPEX? What are you getting on rent? How many bedrooms, baths? And what's the square footage and address? I can, if you give me those things in about that quick, I can tell you if I'm going to buy it just because I, I, I know exactly all the costs and everything else. I do this every week. Mm -hmm. So anyhow, I was like, yeah. And uh, so I reach, I reach out uh, to her and I'm like, yeah, can I go take a look? She goes, absolutely. So go over there, take a look at it. And I was like, yep. So I was like, all right, I'm going to make a run at this thing for 310, knowing that I was willing to pay 320 for it, right? Over 320, just wasn't, juice wasn't going to be worth squeeze on me. And I call her and I was like, hey, I'm making an offer. She goes, hey, I have a real estate agent. And I was like, <laughs> fabulous. Great. And this guy was a born again idiot, right? Like matter of fact, not only was he born dumb, but he hit the stupid branches on the tree all the way down the tree. And so he gets involved and he goes, well, let me tell you what's going to happen, bro. And I was like, okay, that's cute. What, what's going to happen? He goes, so we're going to put this thing on the market for 350. And I was like, hey, cool. So when you don't sell the house for 350, you should go put yourself in rehab because you're smoking crack. There ain't no way you're getting 350 for that house. No way, no how. It's not going to happen. I was like, but here's what I will do. I will close this thing cash seven days, 310. Here you go. All he had to do was counter. If he would have countered, I would have gone up 320. We would have closed that thing cash seven days. Done and done, right? Hell, I was even willing to go. I wouldn't even inspect it, right? I already knew everything was wrong with it because whenever we went to look, the tenants that let us in, man, they gave us a guided tour on everything that was wrong with the house. They were like, yeah, we've lived here for a year. We've reported this, 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 and this. And I was like, okay, doing the math in my head. That's going to be that. That's going to be that. I already know what the costs are going to be. And anyhow, this guy, his ego and his just moronistic abilities just go, you know, I just don't think that we're going to, in fact, stop communicating with us and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, all right, man, that's cool. So we put it on MLS and it sold for 305. <laughs> and I was just sitting there laughing uncontrollably of like idiots like that, that are out there representing somebody's interests. He left 15 grand on the table for his client mm -hmm. because he's a dipshit. And you can't, like Jeff Foxworthy says, you can't fix stupid, right? <laughs> and I just sit there and I was just like, that's somebody that's trying to fake it till they make it. And, 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 and funny, so one of the guys that works for me, I said, this is, this is a prime example of, of why we do what we do. We have our lane, we stay in our lane, and we don't go outside the boundaries, right? If we're going to go outside the boundaries, it better be because the juice is certainly going to be worth the squeeze on it. 
And folks just, man, they really, I, I try telling them like, man, if you're going to get into this thing, start doing your research and look, YouTube videos and going to a seminar does not mean you're going to know what you're doing. Right. And some of this, you're just not going to be able to learn till you get the experience doing it. Yeah, and, for sure. And you know, um, real estate investors and real estate agents, both, um, you know, there's a, there's a, a risky period of, inex of inexperience, but overconfidence, which is a terrible combination to have. And, uh, and I'll go right. Like, hold on. <laughs> I haven't heard it phrased that way, but I want to write that down because that is the ac most accurate way I've heard. So a, a risky period. It's a, it's a period of, uh, overconfidence and inexperience. Uh, and it's a, it's a terrible combination because you think that you know things, but you don't actually. And so you go in with this massive level of confidence and, you know, people believe you, but especially as an agent, you're representing somebody else and it's, it's, you know, you have a duty to give them good information. And, uh, so if you don't, if you don't really know what you're doing, it's a, it's a really, really bad combination. And, you know, investors all the time run into that scenario where agents are highly overconfident in the value of a house. Oftentimes, you know, sadly, they'll do it intentionally because often the agent that says your house is worth the most money is the one that gets the listing. And so, you know, agent might go in and inflate the value knowing they're going to drop the list price over time. But, um, you know, the really good ones are shoot straight with their clients. Say, here's about what it's going to sell for. And you want to be right in that zone. And those are the ones that really represent their clients. Managing well. expectations, right? And, and so that's, I mean, that's how we became in the top on, the, on my real estate team side of things, not my other stuff, but like in 2021, we were number six out of all agents in all of Fort Worth. And, you know, and what people don't realize is I, I, I easily turned down four to $5 million worth of production a year. And I got other agents go, huh, knew how much money you would have made in doing that? And I was like, look, just because I turned down more than what you do in a year is because I don't want to deal with people that are going to have misaligned expectations. And they're like, well, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, well, I mean, I did $44 million in production. So really the four or $5 million turned down didn't hurt me. Actually, I probably wouldn't have been able to do that production because I would have been wasting my time with someone that had misaligned expectations. Well, and I think you know that to me is a really important business lesson that a lot of people don't learn until further in their business career, that often... The things that you say no to are the most important things. You know, when entrepreneurs first start out, they're just desperate for revenue. Like I'll, anybody that's writing me a check, I'll work with them. I'll do whatever they want. I won't have any systems. Anything you need, let me know, and I'll do it. Because when you're starting out, you're just desperate for that revenue. And over time, you learn who's the right kind of client for you, who fits in the systems and processes you've built for your business, and what type of person can you serve the best. Uh, and we do this in in our business all the time. I work with our sales team. And there's a lot of people that want to buy leads from us and we, we turn them down. Uh, we say, this is not the right fit for you. Uh, you know, oftentimes it's a novice real estate agent or a novice real estate investor. And, you know, they want to dump their last $5,000 that they have into marketing uh, to get a home seller. And we know that if you're inexperienced, your ability to convert leads is going to be very low. You might not buy a house at all out of the batch of leads that come in, even though there's some great ones in there. And you're going to make a, you know, if you don't have the capital to buy the house, it's going to be a mess anyway. And then if you don't buy a house, you're going to blame us for your situation. And so we often have people that want to write us big checks and we say, this is just not a good fit for you. If you haven't been uh, experienced, if you haven't already bought a lot of houses or listed a lot of houses and have experience in the industry, you shouldn't be buying leads and doing big marketing campaigns. You need to get your feet wet. You need to get familiar. You need to 
understand how to work with home sellers uh, before you really start dumping a bunch of money into marketing. But unfortunately, you know, some people just have more money than experience and they throw money at a problem uh, and it doesn't deliver for them. So I think I think that is a huge lesson uh, for you know not just real estate, but any business owner. Know who your ideal client is and get really comfortable saying no to people that aren't your ideal client. So that's what I that's what I joke around and I call going from street hooker to high end call girl, <laughs> right? You can't afford me now, right? <laughs> kind of thing. And, and it is important to know how to say no, right? And like I got I got one particular friend of mine, and uh, uh, he and he's a great guy, and I love hanging out with him, and I love drinking beer with him. And he was just like, "Hey, I want you to sell my house," and I was like. No way, no how, not on this planet, save your life. And he's like, why? Why won't you do that? And I was like, I'll love you like a brother, but you're an asshole to work with. I am not, not going to put my team through that. And then, of course, our other mutual friend is just cracking up. He was pissed at me for a year. Like, we couldn't go get a drink without him going, I can't believe you did that. And I was just like, hey, man. I'm like that high-end call girl. You can't afford me, man. You know, and he would just get even more. I'm just throwing salt on the wood. And he's just getting pissed. But that was the thing is, you know, is a friend of mine, Chris Klug, who uh, is in Aspen. He's an agent, Sotheby's agent up in Aspen. He got a bronze medal in the downhill uh, uh, many, many years ago. And when he and I were talking uh, several years ago, I was like, hey, how do you get a bronze medal in the downhill? And he goes, man, I'm going to break it down to you like Jeff Fox, whether you're smarter than a fifth grader style, right? Um, my dad told me, plan your path, ski your path, because when you deviate, that's when you run into problems, right? And that's exactly it. Don't try to be everything to everyone, right? Get more specific and stay in your lane. Because if you're going around chasing everything, then you're going to, you're just going to find like you're on a hamster wheel and you're wearing yourself out and you're just not making the kind of capital you thought you would make at that. And I think those are important business lessons that have a lot of inexperienced, hell, you even see it with some experienced people that just never learn those lessons, right? Well, I mean, look at, look at Zillow. Zillow did exactly that, right? They, they built a amazing, super profitable business, the online MLS, you know, selling leads to agents, very, very successful, very, very profitable. They felt like they had to get into the house buying business, which is a massively different business that's not, you can't solve for technology. So you got to have people on the ground looking at properties, doing all this stuff. And they poured hundreds of millions of dollars into trying to buy houses and took a bath on it because they got completely outside of their experience zone and said, well, it seems like everybody, you know, all these iBuyers out there are making all this money and getting these crazy valuations. We have to be in that business. And, you know, it, it really hurt them. Kudos to them for realizing that early on and saying, you know what, better to lose hundreds of millions than billions. We got to get out of this thing and go back to our roots, which is, you know, the technology platform, not trying to buy houses physically. Yeah. So I'd be amiss if we didn't talk about EO. Of course. How did you get, how did you get involved or introduced to EO? I was uh, in my mid twenties and had uh, you know, a couple years into my business and didn't have a lot of uh, business mentors around me. And uh, or didn't know a lot of people that were entrepreneurs and, and running businesses. Uh, and um, I was on a I was on a, a youth group trip uh, as a volunteer uh, leader uh, on a youth group trip. And uh, one of the other guys on the bus had just sold his company. And so I glommed onto him, just peppering him with questions, asking him a million things. And he said, "You know, there's this great group you should look into called EO Entrepreneurs Organization, and I think you would really benefit from it." And uh, so as soon as we got back from the trip. 
I did a bunch of research and, and uh, found out that there's a chapter in Dallas and called them and talked to them and, and got involved in the organization. It's a nonprofit organization dedicated to um, helping entrepreneurs grow and building community around entrepreneurship. Uh, and so I joined, I don't know, 17 years ago or so. And it has just been one of the best things that I've ever done in my life. Uh, it's had a huge impact on my business, but also just a huge impact on my personal life and how I work with people and how I understand people. Uh, and so it's um, it's really, I think, every entrepreneur uh, that uh, qualifies should be a part of the, the organization. It, it really, my best friends now are part of the group. Uh, I've traveled all over the world with uh, people in the organization. Uh, and it's really, you know, the key part of it is uh, what they call forum groups, which are like little mastermind groups of seven to 10 people that meet every month and really just break down uh, everything in their business and in their life. Absolute confidentiality, absolute trust and respect, uh, where you can just talk about everything in your business, uh, in your life, uh, and know it's not going to leave that room. And that, uh, especially for entrepreneurs that can sometimes feel lonely or disconnected because of all the things that they're working with, and uh, sometimes they can't talk to their spouse about you know, the business issues. They can't talk to their employees about things. And so it can be a little bit lonely sometimes. These peer groups are amazing for building community around entrepreneurship. And uh, and like I said, it's, you know, some of my best friends in the world are part of uh, the organization. I've done a lot of volunteer work. Uh, as I said, it's a nonprofit. A lot of volunteer work for the organization, both um, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and uh, a lot of work globally with them. So I can't recommend them enough. It's a lot of fun. It's how we met. Yeah. And, uh, and it's just a really great organization. Man, I, uh, I, I, I joke around and I call it, it's the codependent place <laughs> for us to all share things that are, because employees understand, right? <laughs> no. Right. You know, like I, I like I, I laugh when people come up and they're just like, man, you just done some amazing things and it's the great success. You know, how'd you get there? And I'm like, what? <laughs> If I took off my clothes, all you would see is road rash, right? <laughs> because, man, I have got some scrapes and bruises to get here, and it yeah. wasn't easy. And and so being able to have that – matter of fact, a prime, prime example is uh, – so I was in – when I first joined, I, we were all new, and they put a forum together, and it just fell apart, right? Mm -hmm. And then we tried to do it again, and then COVID happened, and, and it fell apart. And I was actually – at that point, like, man, I, I think I'm just going to leave you, right? I'm just like, this is not working. And I am still incredibly humbled that I was allowed, that I was invited to come to the forum I'm in now with Don Williams, Don Lamont. I mean, it's just some, yeah, solid some group. titans in business, right? I call them the business titans. <laughs> and uh, and I was like, really? Y'all you know, you know, this? Okay. So, like, for example, we had uh, our forum yesterday. And so we're going around doing our updates and all that other stuff. And uh, then we did went through the parking lot. They were like, okay, who probably has the most sense of urgency on a presentation? And everybody was like, span. Like, <laughs> and what it was is I knew that I later on in the evening, I was going to have to have a very challenging conversation with somebody I cared about really, really very much. And at the same time, I did not want to break their spirit. I needed them to have clarity. And it was just... Without going into details, there was just a lot of complications with how. That, matter of fact, I had not slept in forty-eight hours, just pacing. Like, how how do I have this conversation that I don't stunt them from being the tiger I want them to be? But at the same time, I know I can't change the stripes on a tiger, but I need I need some things to have clarity if we're going to succeed at this, right? 
And so in, if we do it in EO, we do it through Gestalt, experience share. You don't give anybody advice or say, this is what you should do. It's just experience share. So you can try to get some clarity on how you're going to handle. So we went around the table after I did my presentation. And I mean, holy cow. It, 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 I was like, this, this is exactly what I need to do. And I was able to have that conversation and it went a million times better than I could have ever predicted it. And that to me itself is worth more than words or money could ever express. Right. Because the relationship was more important to me than anything else. But if we didn't change some things, then the relationship was going to be affected because I don't care who you say priest president, Money affects everything. Money can affect relationships. If you don't believe me, go home, dump your bank account, and see how your relationship is with your spouse. <laughs> and, and so that was that was huge. And, yeah. and that's that's why I tell people, I was like, hey, look, if you're if you're going to be a business owner, you, you you need to seriously look at EO. As a matter of fact, when uh, next week when they do the uh, 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 what's the thing out at the zoo? Um, God. Yeah, the vendor showcase. Right? Yeah, and so. You know, I've got several companies where I've taken old Marine Corps buddies and it's like, okay, let's get this business here. Let's get this business here. And I said, we're going to go do this because I've been excited that now six months later, after we've built these several different businesses, that I want them to get that introduction to EO because they hear me talk about it. They see me go and they're just like, man, you know, what's the big deal? And of course, one of them, I was like, hey, big deal because yesterday, because of my forum, we had a better conversation now yeah. you know, it could have gone. And, uh, and so I get excited to be able to introduce them to that, knowing that I told them, I said, look, the businesses are not where you're, you're going to be in, in EO member yet, but well, let's get you introduced to it so you can get in the accelerator program because business is, is it, like the technical stuff, you know, equals MC square got divided by the square root of .com or profit financials and all that, all that's technical stuff, Right. Those are mechanics. Anybody can learn the mechanics. Hell, go on Khan Academy, right? You learn how to do that. Matter of <laughs> fact, dropped a hundred grand at TCO my MBA, and I was like, hell, all I had to do was watch Khan Academy. Like, <laughs> what the hell? You know, make yeah. jokes. I got a lot of value out of my MBA at TCU, <laughs> so trust me, TCU. I paid you for it, but I'm like, it's mindset, right? You you have to understand if you've gone from being an employee your entire life, and now you're going to be an employer because you own a business. There's a night and day difference. And uh, like even my guy, we were sitting here talking. I was like, hey, all your other buddies that don't own businesses. I was like, do you even have conversations with you now? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, can you remotely even identify with them anymore? And he's like, can't even try to explain this to them. And I was like, yeah, because unless you live through it, you just don't know. It would be like me speaking Mandarin right now. And you don't understand Mandarin unless you understand Mandarin. You're not going to understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that's why EO has just been fabulous. And then. Like I said, I was going to leave. And then now a year and a half later after being in the forum I'm in now, I'm like, dude, the only way you're getting rid of me is somebody's going to have to show up with a pistol and put one <laughs> in the back of my head, you know? And they all joke around because I like to say shit that makes people really uncomfortable because I get a good yeah. kick out of it. And now they've really gotten more comfortable with the things that I say. They're like, where do you come up with this stuff that you say, man? And I was just like, I don't know. It was a thought bubble. And, and it, sometimes it's also a miss where everybody looks at me and they're like, no, that was, that, that was not, that was not a hit. Uh, so fireball, right? Are yeah. you going to do that? I am. Yeah. Yeah. We've got this you know amazing event that we're going to do. It's kind of a combination adventure race and uh, learning experience and 
I don't know what all's involved in it, but uh, Fireball Run sounds really exciting. Yeah. Forward to it. Oh yeah. Uh, um, one of the guys in our forums already signed up for it, and I plan on I plan on doing that because I was just like, that just sounds like fun. Yeah. Right. And that's one of the other things I love about EO too is the level of speakers that we get. You know, like Warren Rustin, right? I mean that. <laughs> That guy's forgot more about business than this entire city will ever learn, right? And then just the lunch and I really miss the lunch and learns. And now, n- namely because now that we've been back to doing them, it's just every time there is one, I'm not here, yeah. right? But I mean, like I, f- there's times where I fly in for my my formal meeting, like catch a six a.m. flight to be here and then catching the evening flight back out because yeah. I am not gonna miss. Might for a meeting. A lot of people do that. And, you know, the, the other great thing is that there's, um, you know, chapters all over the world. And, you know, so I love to travel. You like to travel. And I have often um, been in another city, looked up who the local chapter was. And invariably, a bunch of guys or a bunch of entrepreneurs will meet up for lunch or for dinner and hang out and talk. And, kept, you know, business owners, entrepreneurs have this uh, almost fraternity kind of a thing where, you know, when you get together, you immediately feel connected and have these conversations. And so there's just, you've got friends in every city of the world. You know, I've been to Hong Kong and one of our friends out there in Hong Kong hosted us, took us out on his boat, took us out to um, dinner uh, and just showed us a great time because he was an EO, we were an EO, we were part of this group together and he really wanted to make sure we experienced Hong Kong in a great way and hang out and have fun with us. And I've done that in dozens of cities uh, around the world uh, and had amazing experiences where uh, I had an experience one time I went to New York and um, uh, I called the, ch- the president of the chapter in New York and said, hey, I'm coming into New York. I've got kind of these things on my bucket list. Can you guys help? And a bunch of them they couldn't do anything with. But one of them was I said I wanted to tour the New York Stock Exchange. And he said, well, uh, we actually have a partnership with the New York Stock Exchange. Nobody can tour it. You know, after 9-11, nobody's allowed in. They're, they don't do tours. And uh, he said, but we have a connection with them uh, through some of the programs that we run. Let me see what I can do. And uh, I said, okay. So he calls me back, says, show up at 10 a.m. at the guard uh, gate, uh, and I got you taken care of. I'm like, well, what does that mean? He said, I just, I got you taken care of. Just go to the guard gate, give me your name. So I go out there. It's December. It's cold. And you can't even go up to the front door of the New York Stock Exchange. You have to go to this guard tent that's, you know, a dozen yards away. So I go to the guard tent, give him my name. He's like, oh, yeah, hold on. And he gets on his phone, calls somebody over. This guy walks out, you know impeccable trench coat, very GQ looking, you know, somebody like you think looks like on Wall Street. He said, come with me. So he walks us in and it turns out this guy is a um, senior vice president with one of the big investment banks. And his job is to entertain really important people, of which I am not one, uh, entertain really important people uh, around the stock exchange. And so this guy proceeds to give us a two and a half hour tour just him walking us around, introducing me to the MSNBC anchors and the Fox Fox Business anchors. And here's the guy that, uh, you know, he's trading Google and he, you know, here's what this guy's doing. And just telling us everything about the exchange and how it worked, uh, you know, super VIP treatment. You know, the last guy that was out there was Arnold Schwarzenegger that he'd given a tour to. So that's the kind of people he's entertaining. And it was just because of EO, because of a connection and because I asked and, you know, in every city, EO members have some kind of connection to really cool things. That's it's easy for them. It's a phone call, and they're happy to do it, kind of in the network. So uh, I've had, you know, I've got dozens, if not hundreds, of those kinds of experiences. But uh, if you love to travel, 
I always look up the local chapter and just connect with them and, and meet really interesting, cool people. Man, I, I, I do the this, this same thing and, and even vice versa when they come here. So yesterday on the show, I had Trent Clark, who's out of Michigan. And uh, so Don Williams in my my forum, it, it trying to reach out, said, hey, I'm coming there with my kids, hockey team. We're here to be a part of that. I am second thing and mm -hmm. a bunch of other stuff they were doing. And they were like, hey, there's some things we want to do. Like we want to go to TCU and look at the football, so like see the locker room, stuff like that. And, and Don was like, hey, let me get you connected with Span. He's alumni. You probably, you know, see if you can do it. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, sitting there talking BS. And this is this is also what I love about EO, too, is like the humbleness mm -hmm. of stuff. Right. And so. Anyhow, then on top of that, I was still in Colorado and he calls me Sunday and he's just like, hey, man, we just we had something to cancel on us and we're looking for something to go do. And I was like, cool. I was like something kind of last minute. I was like, hey, what, how do you feel about sporting clays? And he was like, yeah, never, none of us have ever shot anything like that. You know, what do we do? So, you know, I've got I, I, I've got sponsorships out at Defender Outdoors, both the indoor stuff and the sporting clays ranch. So I call Travis Mears, you know, and it's like, hey, I was like, I you know, and he's out in the field hunting, right? So I always feel privileged. Like he'll answer my phone. He's in the middle of hunting. He's like, oh, Span's calling. I really don't want to hear what Span has to say. But man, he gives me a lot of money, you know? So, uh, and he's like, yeah. And I was like, hey, I got these guys that are that are in town. I'm not there. I can't do it. What, what can we do to hook them up? And he goes, tell them to go down to the range. Sierra will get them all hooked up. Mark will go out and give them lessons and all that. And I was like, cool. So I called Trent and said, hey, man, just show up. Go in there. Sierra's going to get you all taken care of. Dude, he sends me photos like these. <laughs> like, they were all nervous first. They're shooting shotguns, right? These kids, like, man, you know. And he just goes, they had a blast, right? And I was like, yeah, absolute pleasure. And then uh, and then yesterday he came in to, to do the show. And not only did he come in to do the show, but one of the things that I just find absolutely amazing about the humbleness is he also brought with him his rings, his World Series rings. Wow. Yeah. Right? He's been in the World Series three times. I'm like, what? <laughs> Holy cow. Like, how, how cool is that? You know? And so we were sitting there getting pictures with the rings and stuff like that. And uh, and I was like, can I put one on? He goes, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, hey, I'm in sales. So the answer is always no unless you ask, right? No, but seriously, great guy. Yeah. And, uh, and, and also – Really interesting enough is he's also a coach. I'm mean, not just coach, like baseball coach, but like, like, uh, like you know, executive coach. And right. I've had executive coaches, right? And uh, and my last coach, we finished up a little over a year ago because we just we we got to that pivotal moment where it's like, hey, he, he's like, I've taken you as far as I can take you, and uh, and I knew it's been on my mind, right, for the last sixty days. It's like. Man, I need another coach that's going to be able to take me to that next level, right? Old Jim Collins. Hey, what got you here is not going to get you there uh, because I'm hitting my leadership limitations. Mm -hmm. and I don't mean that as like a, oh, hey, wait, I'm not a great leader. It's like, no, I've, I'm, I'm tapped out on my experience, knowledge, and education on what to go do next. And um, But it's also very important for me that I've got chemistry with that person in, in, in a fit, right? Because – also, like me, he's like having a tiger by the tail, right? Like my first coach, like <laughs> you'll laugh at this. So my last coach, uh, one of my guys, I have him with him now. And he literally comes every, every Monday after he meets with him, he's like, fuck that guy. <laughs> he's like, he's like, and I was like, oh, good. So it's working, right? Because he's telling you all the shit you didn't want to hear. Yeah. Right. Or as I used to joke around, I was like, yeah, Tony. I was like, yeah. 
I was like, I spent 30 grand a year for him to tell me everything my wife would tell me for free. But when you drop 30 grand, you tend to listen, right? And uh, so, you know, so in Trent, so we finished the show and I was like, hey, the next four weeks are absolutely insane, but could we circle up and would you be interested at all as taking me on as a client? He was like, hell yeah. And I was like, because dude, when we were sitting here doing that episode, I was like, I called my wife. I was like, that's the guy. That's the guy that's going to get us to the next one. Yeah. Because having a coach is really, I, I believe, is absolutely imperative if you really, really want to get better. And everybody agrees. But for me personally, I was just like, yeah, because I realize that I am part of the problem 99% of the time. Right. And I need someone to help me get there. And his focus was really on mechanics of things. And I was like, yeah, I need to get, I, I, I fixed a lot of things about me right? That helps me be better for my people. But now my education experience and knowledge is limited on the mechanics of the things I need to do next. Mm -hmm. Right. And again, how that happen? EO. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, we all have blind spots, whether it's in our business or in our personal lives and you can't, you know, you can't see what you can't see. And yeah. I think that's the value of EO and it's the value of a coach. Both can help you see the things that you're not seeing in yourself, your leadership ability, uh, or just ideas and, and um, how you run your business, uh, they can help point those things out to you and help you see the blind spots. You still got to do the work. You still yeah. have to, you know, it's still your responsibility. But, you know, if nobody points that stuff out, sometimes you just go your whole life and not realize that you've got these glaring errors that all the people around you can see, but you're just oblivious to. Yeah. Self-awareness, man. That's that, a big one. That, that, that is a good one. So I like to cap off all these shows. Of, Another I dad joke? No, 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 no. I will not torture you with another one of those. I only believe in torturing you in the beginning, not the end. Okay. You know, unless you got a good dad. <laughs> I do not. No, right. Well, all right. Well, if you did, I would use it on my next episode. <laughs> and I can be like, hey, if that one sucks, you can blame Brand on this one. <laughs> go. So go back 20-year-old self. I know we didn't want to tell ourselves a million things and everything else. But if you could turn back the hands of time and you knew you had a five-minute window to go back to 20-year-old Jeremy and say, hey, 20-year-old Jeremy, do or don't do this. What is the one thing you would tell 20-year-old self? Uh, aside from put everything in Bitcoin? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think uh, if I were to look back and um, on the kind of things that I've learned over the years, it's um, I'm a very impatient person. And I think one of the things I would tell myself is, you know, persistence is key. Consistency and persistence can get you everywhere in the world. We all want stuff overnight, really fast. Um, most entrepreneurs are very ADD and all over the map and pinging from one thing to the next. And um, you know, over the years, I've just learned that the how you really achieve great things is persistence and consistency. Yeah, there's some times where you make really huge decisions and transform the direction that your life goes. But most often in business, it's a million tiny decisions over and over and over again that take your business from you know one level to next level or take your relationships from one level to the next level. It's it's not the huge events. It's the consistent, persistent uh, things that you do over time that really matter. And um, I'm much more measured and much more consistent now than I was when I was in my 20s. Uh, I was all over the map, you know, ADD, starting 10 different businesses, bouncing between them. And, um, and I think that's what I would go back and tell myself. And buy Bitcoin. Yeah, buy Bitcoin. <laughs> Sound advice from the master himself. So people want to learn more about you, connect with you. Where do they go? How do they get, how do they get there? Uh, yes, yeah, so you can always, uh, I'm on Twitter at Jeremy Brandt. Um, you know, our company websites are fasthomeoffer.com and webuyhouses.com. 
Uh, so if you're interested in either of those companies, uh, you can connect with us and uh, happy to tell you more about uh, those. And of course, if you're a business owner, entrepreneur, uh, check out eonetwork.org. Uh, that's the website for entrepreneurs organization. And uh, like I said, it's a nonprofit. Nobody gets paid to promote it, but uh, it's made a huge difference in my life. And I think uh, anybody that's an entrepreneur or business owner should do it. Is that one's you right there, right? That is me. Okay. Look at that. I'm giving you a follow right now. All right. I'm all excited because I'm up to... 2,043 followers. Wow. Yeah. Look at you. We yeah, had like, pr- promote your, uh, promote your handle on Twitter. You get a bunch of followers. Yeah. I, I love, I love Twitter. <laughs> right. And I've become, because it was really funny. Is I, 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 a lot of people are like, Hey man, great posts on social media. And I'm like, cool. What my guy post? I have no idea. Like <laughs> it's not me on most of my, uh, uh, so, but right. Twitter has been a great resource for learning for me. Like, you know, other people that are like, Hey, this, you know, so I, I, I love it. So I'm following you. All right. we'll follow back when you can't, you know, it'll take me to 2,044 people. Uh, and then, hey, uh, for the audience out there, uh, if, if you're driving and you weren't somewhere you can write this down, you can always go to myexperiencedrealtor.com. That's experience with an ED. Click on podcast, go down to Jeremy Brandt, and it'll have all the information on what he just said, as well as downloading this episode and other episodes from all the different platforms and YouTube and all that. And of course, if you're looking to buy and sell real estate anywhere on the planet and you don't want an idiot to represent you, click the find a trusted professional in the span group. We'll make sure you get the right person to be able to do it. Jeremy, thanks for coming on the show, brother. Great to be here, man. I appreciate it. Yeah.